let's turn back to the portion we've read, the prophecy of Zechariah and chapter 3. And let us again read the words from 8 to 10. And you'll notice that these words are spoken, beginning at verse 6, by the angel of the Lord. That he's saying, the Lord of hosts is speaking. So it's the angel of the Lord who's speaking here, but the words that he speaks emanate from Almighty God, the Lord of hosts in heaven. Indeed, they emanate from both because the angel is himself the Lord also. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign, they are types. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon this stone, upon the stone, are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his fine and under his fig tree. Now this is a very Christ-centered portion of Scripture, these two versions, these two or three versions. And as I've already pointed out, they are words that are spoken by the angel of the Lord, and we already discussed that this morning. He is God, appearing as a man, in the form of a man in the Second Old Testament, they're spoken by the angel of the Lord, but they emanate from the Lord of hosts in heaven. They're a very solemn testimony that, is, that they're given to us. You see that in verse 6, where, it, where, the, where the mention is made, first of all, of the angel speaking. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. There are words of warning, words of admonition. In the, in the authorized version, it's put as the, it's a protestation that comes from the Lord of hosts. The sense is it's a testimony. It's the words that the Lord of hosts is testifying and are being spoken to us by the angel of the Lord by the Son of God. Words to be taken note of, therefore. They can be regarded as a warning, they can be regarded as a testimony, at words of testifying. But they are solemn and to be noted. And there are three things that they bring, for, bring before us concerning Christ. First of all, they show us that Christ is the antitype of the Old Testament priesthood. I'll come back to that. Secondly, they bring before us that Christ, and, and you notice that, by the way, in, in, uh, 
Verse 8, Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. The words spoken to Joshua, words representing the whole church, words spoken to the whole church through, through its representative, but not just to Joshua, but to his companions. Notice that the scene has changed from what we looked at this morning. In the morning, the scene was the angel of the Lord, Joshua, and Satan. Now, Satan has disappeared from the scene, and what we have is Joshua, the high priest, sitting in the midst of his companions. And what we have here is understood by all commentators is the high priest alongside the priests of the Aaronic order, of the Levitical order. It's the Aaronic order of priesthood that's brought before us by Joshua and his companions. And we're told that this Aaronic order, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, they are a wondrous sign. They are a wondrous sign. This sense there is that they are symbols of one who is to come. They are a type of the Christ who is to come. They are a type of the great antitype who is yet to come when this is being written. And in, in the sense that they are a type, this is, the, this is my first heading, you see, that Christ is the antitype of this Aaronic order. Or you could put it the other way, the Aaronic order was a type of the Christ who was to come. Secondly, we have here that Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And you see that when you look at the end of verse 8. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant to the branch. And then it goes on, for behold the stone. And there you have a reference to Old Testament prophecy. The servant is a name given to Christ. We'll look at this more fully in a moment. But he's the servant of the Lord. Remember Isaiah 53, for example. Remember, remember Isaiah 14, 42, for example. Behold my servant whom I will uphold, my elect in whom my soul delighteth. The servant. And uh, it's the fulfillment of the, of the prophecy also in this word, the branch. You see that? Uh, well, we'll come to that in a moment. But he's also a type of Christ as the stone, the foundation stone, the cornerstone of the church. That will be our second heading. And then thirdly, we want to look at the preciousness of this stone this cornerstone as it represents Christ. And we see that in the teachings concerning 
the seven eyes that the stone has. We'll see it also in connection with the engraving that is upon the stone, the inscription that is engraved upon the stone, and we'll see it also in the fact that this work is done in one day. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And we will see it also in verse end of verse 10. In that day, may the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. These are going to be the three ways we're going to look at this portion tonight. Christ is the antitype of the Aaronic orders. Joshua and his companions sitting before him. Christ is the fulfillment of Scripture, the servant, the branch, the cornerstone, and the preciousness of Christ as that is represented by the stone, particularly in the eyes of the stone, particularly also in the engraving on the stone, and so forth. Right, we'll look at that in this that order then. First of all, that Christ is the antitype of the Aaronic order of priesthood, of the Levitical order of priesthood. You and your companions spoken to Joshua the high priest to sit before you. They are a wondrous sign, they are types, is the sense of the wondrous sign. They are a symbol of the one who is to come. And I've already noted that the scene has been changed. And uh, we note um, they are types, the ironic order of priesthood. They're an imperfect type of the one who was to come. <coughs> They're imperfect in, uh, as regards their person. You needed a succession of priests of the Levitical order to represent the one, the one who was to come. When one priest died, another had to take his place. There had to be a succession. They were men. They passed away as other men do. They were also imperfect, not only in their persons, uh, but. Uh, imperfect types also in their ministry. Their, in their ministry was, um, was, um, was to do with the atonement, was to do with the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, but uh, their, uh, their work was imperfect in the sense that um, they couldn't their sacrifices were sacrifices of bulls and goats and the blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish uh, the putting away of sin it had to be repeated time and again as types, as something foreshadowing but not the complete reality of the antitype but although they were imperfect types they were types they were types, and they were showing forth, they were foreshadowing the redeeming work of Christ who was to come. 
every time that you you had a day of atonement and the high priest took um, the blood and went into the most high place well he was representing the work of Christ they were indeed representing the one who was to come although an imperfect type in themselves but the very nature of types the very by definition as it were the speaking of types it was a pledge of the anti-type who must come that was the very nature of the type it spoke of one who must come who was to come and who must come and that is what we have Christ is the one who was typified by them and he has come and he is the complete type he is complete in his passion he is the God man he is very God of very God he took human nature into union with his own divine passion uh, in the miracle of the incarnation by the creative power of the Holy Spirit he was supernaturally formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary and in the course of time nine months he was born of a not mere man but the God man the Holy One of God says Luke and he is very he is very God of very God and therefore eternal as well as very man of very man and as the God man he ever liveth. He's not after the he's not made after a carnal commandment, but is made after the power of an endless life. A glorious passion. He needs no successors. He is the type. He is the one who was typified. He is the one who has come. And not only is he perfect in his in his passion, uh, but perfect in his ministry. He is made after the order of Melchizedek. And the order of Melchizedek, we were singing about it in Psalm 110. Oh, it vastly superseded in importance and in meaning and significance the order of Levi, the <coughs> order of Aaron. He needed not the blood of bulls and of goats. He gave himself a ransom. He gave himself as the sacrifice to satisfy the claims of divine justice in the Roman place of his people. He is the priest who offers himself voluntarily. He is the priest and he is the sacrifice. He is the one who met in his life and supremely in his death the claims of God's righteousness upon his people as sinners. He who knew no sin in himself was made to be sin for us who knew nothing but sin that we in him might be made the righteousness of God. He is the, he is the perfect antitype in his passion and in his ministry. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He could say of that work that was committed to him, it is finished. And he has been raised on the third day 
God giving us a receipt of the acceptance of that sacrifice that he made. And he has ascended up on high and is enthroned. And as we were singing, the Father said to him, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes a stool whereon my feet may stand. And he reigns there until all enemies are made a footstool to his feet. He's gathering to himself his people, his elect, out of every tribe and people and son. The gospel is going forth. And he is, by the Spirit and through the truth, making a people willing and enabling them to close in, close in on gospel terms, in their nothingness and demerit, to lean the weight of their soul security upon him, upon his finished work in that place. And to experience there in him as the crucified and risen Redeemer, the sweet persuasion of sin forgiven. And there we can say, who is a God like unto thee? Oh, what a provision has been made here in the antitype. And oh, what a privilege was it that was given to the Aaronic order of priests to be types, to be foreshadowing the perfect one who was to come and who has now come. Who has now come. Notice, notice there, the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. The old pointing for foreshadowing. The new, the completion. We live, we live as a privileged people, the full revelation of God having been given to us. Well, that's a little then, first of all, the Joshua and his companions, men of type, men of men of men of men of wonder, they are types of the one who was to come. Christ is the antitype of the Aaronic order. Secondly, Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I already pointed out to you The words that we have there at the end of verse 8. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Notice so two things are put together there. The servant and the branch. is spoken of as, as one. He's spoken of as one. But he is the servant and the branch as well. The servant of the Lord. See, Israel was the servant of the Lord. Israel was uh, given the remit, the, 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 the truths of God were given to Israel. Not just not so that she would keep them to herself, but so that she would make them known to the nations around her. But Israel failed in that remit. You see that in Isaiah, oh... 42 or 43, verse 19, or that by when you get the words, Who is blind but my servant? Israel was a blind servant. She failed to carry out the remit that was given to her. But Christ is the true servant. He came to fulfill the righteousness that the righteousness of God required him to require of us. Excuse me, I love these words. Try and remember them for yourselves. Because they're a shortcut, they're a shorthand of the wonder of theology. 
the words of William Cunningham, the righteousness that the righteousness of God required him to require of us. Christ has fulfilled that. He is the servant par excellence. He is the one who, in his life and death, well, we've touched on it already, but we're touching it again because it's so wonderful. He fulfilled all righteousness. He met the claims due upon us as sinners. Without that, we would be in a lost hell tonight. But if we are leaning the weight of our soul security upon that finished work, we have a glorious hope. Hell is behind us, and heaven awaits the believers. The servant who has opened the gates of heaven so that none can shut them, and who has closed the gates of hell so that none can open them to them again. There is no, no condemnation to those who are in the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not only the fulfillment of that uh, words of, the, of, of Isaiah from 42 onwards, 42 and into, into, into 53, but um, he's the words, he's the fulfillment of the word, the branch also. You see that in Isaiah, you see it in Jeremiah, various places, but you see it in, in Isaiah 11, for example, um, just chapter 1, you see just one good example of it there. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now the stem of Jesse, Jesse is the father of David, as you know. And uh, David is the kingship of David is spoken of as a trunk, a stem that has fallen to the ground, as it were, but out of that stem there grows a shoot, there grows a branch. And it's from David, it's from the line of David that the Christ was to come. When the time of the children of Israel, children of Judah going into Babylon, they came, it looked as if that promise was dead. It looked as if the kingship the line of David it looked as if it had disappeared, but no. And ultimately, however thin it had become, the Christ came. The son of, you know, humanly speaking, the son of Joseph and the son of Mary, who were descended, particularly Mary, from the line of David. The promise of the kingship was made to David in Second Corinthians, Second Samuel, chapter seven. This kingdom shall have no end. Well, he is David's son in that sense, and he is David's Lord, because he is not mere man but God. And that is fulfilled in Christ, the one who is the king, not just a mere man, but the God-man. 
but in, in the son of David, nevertheless. We find the, the way that's the way that Bartimaeus cries out to him, for example. Though son of David, he cries, have mercy upon us. He was the son of David, but he is more. He is the branch. He is God himself. And he is the fulfillment also of the stone. These words that you find here, uh, here on short, uh, for verse 9, for behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. The stone, the foundation stone. Doesn't that hark back to the words of Isaiah again? Uh, Isaiah 28, for example, and verse 16, where you find these words. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. Well, that's what was promised, that was, was what prophesied concerning him, the stone. You find mention of that again in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. The living stone. The, founded, the, living, the church has living stones founded upon this foundation stone. Christ as the foundation, as the cornerstone, a precious cornerstone. And upon this rock, says Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the fulfillment of prophecy, we could go into this in greater, much greater depth, but sufficient to know tonight the fulfillment of these prophecies concerning Christ as the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42 through to 53, and, uh, I, the, as, as the branch we noticed in Isaiah 11, and you could have talk, taken portions of Jeremiah to notice the same thing, the fulfillment in Christ and the fulfillment of Isaiah 28 and verse 16, the tried stone, the cornerstone, the precious stone, in Christ as the rock upon whom which the, uh, he is building the church. And then thirdly, a little on the preciousness of Christ and preciousness of the stone that represents Christ before us here. <laughs> and just a few things to note concerning that stone and its preciousness. It, it's... Uh, in verse 8 you read the words of the word, again the words of the angel of the Lord but emanating from on high emanating from the almighty God himself the angel and the almighty God being one and the same the triune God but nevertheless distinct hear O Joshua the high priest um, the words, the words that are there concerning the precious, the the the, 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 the words that the angel is saying that are emanating from heaven. Behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Now, there was the literal temple that we referred to already this morning when they came back from uh, when they came back from captivity. They set about building the temple with great vim, with great vigor and soon fell away from that. 
There was that literal temple, and it did have a foundation stone, it did have a cornerstone. And that was laid in the presence of Joshua by Zerubbabel, the temporal ruler of that time. But notice, it's not Zerubbabel who's laying the stone here. It's the one who is speaking who's laying the stone. For behold, the stone that I have laid. It's Jehovah himself who's speaking. Yes, speaking through the angel of the Lord, but it's Jehovah who's speaking. I have laid it before Joshua, in the presence of Joshua as the saints. You see, it's not a stone of human production. This is supernatural. This is speaking of Christ as a oh the glory of his person. Again we touch on the same thing. God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And therefore so precious. The only mediator between God and man the one who is, has his hand on God against whom we have offended, the one who has his hand on us, the offenders, who bridges the otherwise unbridgeable chasm that our sin has occasioned, the God-man. He is the stone that's referred to here, not of human protection. Oh, he is eternal, but in taking our nature it was by supernatural creation by the creative power of the Holy Spirit that he took out human nature into union with his divine person in the womb of Mary. Glorious in his person. Glorious as the mediators. He meets the claim, he meets the claims of God's holiness against us and our depravity. He is the servant of God in that respect. He has fulfilled all righteousness in the Roman place of his own. Well, in that sense that it's not of human production, but all of God himself. Precious. Precious indeed. And then precious also in the sense that uh, the stone has seven eyes. Uh, this is difficult. Some commentators take the view that this refers to the seven, the number seven refers to the figure of perfection, and it speaks to the eye of the perfect God himself being always upon him. Whenever he, when he lived in this world, that the, he was the one who, whom the Lord could say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, this eye was always upon him. I prefer, and it's just an opinion, and I leave it with you, I prefer to look on it as the endowments, the spiritual endowments with which he was, the, the endowments that were, were given to him, that you find referred to again in the prophecy of Isaiah. And speaking of the plenitude, the, the fact that he had the Spirit of God was given to him above measure. Let me just find you. Bear with me just a moment while I find the portion. Isaiah 11. The Spirit of God shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Perfection of counsel that was given to him by the spirit so that all his thoughts, all his actions were always in alignment with the will of God. All that he did as the servant of the Lord was with a view to perfect obedience to the glory of God and to the good of those in whose place he stood as the servant. Precious also, not just in the spiritual endowments that were referred to there in Isaiah 11, but precious also in the engraving that this stone has. You read in verse 9, For behold the stone that I, that I have laid in the presence of Joshua, says Jehovah, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, says Jehovah, I will engrave an inscription upon it. Different views taken by different commentators here. This is, I give you my own understanding of it, and uh, whatever is your opinion has come from the pulpit, you try the spirits. But this is the way I understand it. The literal stone, the literal temple that we refer to already today, that was being built after the return from Babylon. It had a foundation stone, a cornerstone, and on that cornerstone there was an inscription engraved. The word, uh, you forget this word as soon as you hear tetragrammata. It refers to the name of Jehovah himself, by the name by which the Jews referred to. They had such reverence for the name of God that they would only use four letters to uh, speak of that holy God. The four letters are J, H, W, H. And these were the words that would be inscribed upon that foundation stone on the literal temple. In other words, the name of God as they understood it. Which they, which they revered so greatly, that was put on that literal, st literal stone, the literal foundation stone of the temple. But working from there, I take it that what we have here, speaking of Christ as that stone, is that, on his, that he is the one in whom the name of God which when we speak of the name of God, we're speaking of the, the character of God, the attributes, all the glorious attributes of God. It's in him that the glorious attributes of God are inscribed, as it were. They're, 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 they're made known in him. <coughs> they were made known in him even in the Old Testament. There was a little made known of the character of that God uh, even there, when, when he was referred to, when, when we speak of the angel of the Lord. See the Psalms, for example, the name of God, I with a song most cheerfully will praise, and I in giving thanks to him, his name will highly raise, the name of God, the character, the revealed character of God. 
when the revealed character of God was not fully revealed then until Christ came, but it was revealed in a measure. So there was the engraving in a little as it were. The chiseling was, was there, but it wasn't as deep as it became when you come into the fullness of Revelation in the New Testament. The chiseling become the chiseling of that name becomes more deep in the miracle of the incarnation. When it's no longer the God appearing in the form of man as the angel of the Lord, but God appearing in the nature of man in the miracle of the incarnation. And there you see even more the character of God is made known in that very, in, in the person of Christ himself. But there's a deeper chiseling. And that comes in the atonement, in Calvary's cross. And if it's not too fanciful, the sense of engraving, it always needs a chiseling, it always needs a cutting. Well, what greater cutting, what greater chiseling, what greater soreness, if you like, than there on the cross of Calvary. There was made known the name of God, the holiness of God, so holy that he spared not his own son when he was made to be sin. The love of God to his people. He so loved that he gave his only begotten son. What more could he have given? The holy love of God is made known there on the cross. The two put together and what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. But there in the cross, a full revelation a full inscription, a full engraving of the character of God in his wisdom, the wisdom that devised this way of salvation. In his holiness, so holy as I've said that he spared not his own son who made sin. His goodness, his justice, so just that his law is inflexible and yet he is is the just God and yet the mercy and the justice of God have kissed together here. The full, and Christ himself could say to Nathaniel, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father also. In me is the full revelation of the character of God as the God of holy love. That's what you have the engraving, the deepening of the engraving with the fullness, with the progression of revelation into the New Testament, particularly in the cross. And the believer can say, therefore, he loved me and gave himself for me. The preciousness of that stone as representative of Christ. The preciousness of, stone, of that stone also that the work was completed in one day. I don't know which verse to, to look to, but it's there. Verse, the end of verse 9. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That's referring to the perfection of the of that the perfection of the atoning work there in Calvary's cross. Took place in one day. It, you see, it's in comparison with the typology of the Old Testament. 
They needed a repetition of their sacrifice of the Day of Atonement year by year by year by year. Here in Christ is completed once. One sacrifice and no more is required. The perfection of that completed work and therefore precious. And finally precious, you see it at the end of verse 10, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And in a word, the preciousness of this living stone, the tendency for true religion towards peace and prosperity. Well, Christ-centered portion. I didn't realize it myself until I came to look at it more closely. But a just two verses, three verses, beautifully speaking, about the one who is the precious one, the antitype, the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, the precious stone. a spirit of worship. What more couldst thou have done than thou hast done? Sparing not the darling of thy bosom in the Roman place of a wicked sinner such as I am. Help us to live in the shadow of our indebtedness. Help us to know the constraint of thy love channeling us day by day into passive obedience, to be making calling and election sure. Grant us to seek the coming of thy kingdom throughout our land. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and of supplications. Take away iniquity. Receive us in the name of the precious one. Amen. <coughs> and we conclude singing in Psalm 130. <coughs> And I just want to note the last verse here and plenteous redemption is ever found with him and from all his iniquities he Israel shall redeem. Lord from the depths to thee I cried. The whole song is. <coughs>